appreciate both those specials today and, and, and Tings who sang this morning. You all did a great job with your special this morning. I appreciated that. Well, that's a bummer. All right. Let's go ahead and turn to Second Peter chapter 3. read one verse here, and then we'll get into the teaching tonight, more of teaching than preaching tonight, as it is with this series on Calvinism. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you'd help me to teach tonight with clarity, to be faithful to your word. Lord, that you would bless. Please control what I say and how I say it. Help me to teach your word effectively, Lord, as we look at at such an important subject as your will and our choice when it comes to your will. So Lord, help me to be clear that all will understand and that it will strengthen us and protect us from false doctrines. And Lord, I do pray for those who are listening, who have, who have chosen to believe in Calvinism, that your spirit would begin to work and to challenge them, and, and uh, Lord, that they could see the error of the doctrines that are there. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I remember there's a shirt back out, uh, come out when all the different riding was going to 2020. Uh, I wanted to order it. It said, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it said. I'm going to get it wrong now. I should have looked it up. It's to the effect of this, that only Calvinist lives matter. <laughs> All right, so we have come to the eye of the tulip, irresistible grace. We've looked at the T, which is the total, total depravity of man. And we'll, we'll be covering a little of that more tonight because total depravity and irresistible grace, as you're going to see, go hand in hand. They're very closely tied together with how, with how the, this theology is taught. Um, and, but total depravity, again, is the idea that man is so depraved that he can in no way possibly seek God on his own. That is completely impossible unless God does a work on his heart, which um, they say is regeneration, being born again, and that is what enables them to seek God. So we dealt with that. We dealt with the faulty, really carnal definition of depravity and being dead in sin. So they use a carnal term for, for definition, not term, I should say, of dead as if dead is. And dead is not nothingness. Um, and, uh, but we looked at that. And then, of course, we looked at the unconditional election, which is so foundational to the teachings of Calvinism, the idea that God has elected some uh, uh, some to be with him in heaven, some to save, and the rest he has chosen not to by his own will, that they will go to hell and there's nothing they can do about it. I thought about tonight with this message because it is somewhat related in, in tying in contradictory statements by the exact same men. Um, along the lines more of unconditional election with irresistible grace, how they contradict themselves over and over when it comes uh, uh, to the doctrine of Calvinism. And then we looked at limited atonement, the idea that Christ only died for the elect and 
and we covered the errors of that. Now on to irresistible grace. So let me read some definitions of it and, and start with the understanding. And, and I do want to finish up tonight. Hopefully I can get to it. If not, I can cover it next week. Um, you've perhaps heard the teaching that um, only babies, uh, that it's not all babies who die. Babies who die. There's, there's a group out there that believes strongly that, uh, that um, babies who die, not all go to heaven. That many multitudes actually go to hell. And a lot of that comes from Calvinism, and we're going to see that here tonight. We're going to address that. Now, I will say this right now. I'll repeat it again. The majority of Calvinists do not believe that. Uh, but, but that doctrine does come from Calvinism, as we're going to see. We'll read it right out of their writings. That's, that, that's where it comes from. They believe only the babies of the elect would actually go to heaven if they perish. But we'll see that's not true. I'll cover that here this evening as well. But anyhow, first off, definition of irresistible grace. I'll refer back once again to Palmer and his definition. I'll quote from him. God sends his Holy Spirit to work in the lives of people so they will definitely and certainly be changed from evil to good people. The Westminster Confession now, chapter 10. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life and those only... He is pleased and in his appointed time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away uh, their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart uh, of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them, uh, determine them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. If, I know it was a long definition, but if you listen to it, you can see the intermingling when they're talking about irresistible grace with total depravity and the necessity of regeneration coming before faith. Uh, uh, so this doctrine is very much tied in with total depravity because of the false premise of total depravity. Um, it necessitates irresistible grace. Remember, I, I do believe Calvin was a, had a, an incredible mind. He started with faulty logic, faulty theology because of Augustine. I'm going to support that more even in tonight's lesson. Because he was such a student of Augustine, when he was de developing this type of systematic theology on Calvinism, he started with a wrong premise. So once he started, his reasoning based on what his foundation was, was right. If this is true, then this is true. It's not that he's incorrect in that. It's that the whole foundation was wrong. Um, and that's a problem. Ah, uh, Levi, would you run in my office real quick and grab my book, What Love Is This? It's sitting right up there. I need to read a section from this. <laughs> so, uh, again, many leading Calvinists recognizes, by the way, that much, uh, well, really all of the doctrine, it, it comes from Augustine himself. Um, and that's what I'm going to read out of this book. Piper, when referring to irresistible grace, said this. He, he went too far as to say, well, they all believe this, not as he went too far. He said, there could be no salvation without irresistible grace. No, that's incorrect. There could be no salvation without grace. And so I want to tie into here total depravity on 
and irresistible grace and tie those together. I want to read something here from you, though, from some Calvinists themselves in regard to this doctrine and that of Augustine. It was a lot to type out, so I thought I would just read it. All right, three, let me get to the page here. <clears throat> All right. Um, who don't want to, I got several men that, that are listed to quote from. I'll start with Warfield. He says of Augustine um, that Augustine may be regarded as the father uh, of the soteriology system called Calvinism. Sproul, who, is, who recently passed away, very prominent Calvinism in, in, in our time frame, perhaps the, the strongest of it. Uh, and uh, he said of Augustinism is presently, he said Augustinism is presently called Calvinism or Reformed theology. Another one shed, let me read from him. Augustine accounts for the fact that some men are renewed and some are not by the unconditional decree. He's exactly right. Augustine accounts for this and not the scripture. This is their the own Calvinists in their own writing admitting this all comes from Augustine. <clears throat> he goes on, according to which God determines to select from the fallen mass of mankind, the whole of whom are alike guilty and under condemnation, a portion upon whom he bestows renewing grace to leave the remainder to their own self-will and the operation of law and justice. Again, so he starts off by saying Augustine is the one this comes from. He's right. Augustine is. Uh, let's see. There was, there was a time in Augustine's life when he actually believed correctly in the free will of man, but that had changed. He had changed his view, and this, this goes on to talk about that, but I'll stop reading from, from there for now. And so much of what we see of Calvinism certainly does come as John Calvin, remember, he was Catholic, his father was churched out, and so that's when John Calvin was a lawyer, that's when he left the Catholic Church himself, uh, um, and then within one year, he had the institutes, uh, for the most part, finished. That's shocking. I mean, if he truly was converted when he left the Catholic Church, like he says, to have finished that, and that means he had to be starting working on that work immediately as a brand newborn babe in Christ. That should bother everyone. And he himself freely admits he was a great student of Augustine. And his writings in, in, in his institutes, that's exactly what they reflect. <clears throat> and again, I taught on total depravity already where it deals with the idea that regeneration precedes faith. It is the teaching under Calvinism that a person must be born again before they're saved. That regeneration precedes faith. That simply isn't true. The moment you place your faith in Christ, that's when you're born again. But they have to have that because of, because of the definition of total depravity, because of how Augustine viewed it, thus Calvin expounded on it. They had to have a way, okay, so then if we're so depraved, how do we come to Christ? We're born again before. That's what it is. God has to do a miraculous work in our hearts that will give us this life, give us the ability to seek God. And on top of it, get this, it's irresistible. There's nothing that person can do now, but he will get saved. It's not even his choice anymore. Again, James White, who, is, who is, does many, many debates in our day today on the issue of Calvinism, 
Let me quote from him. The Reformed assertion is that man cannot understand and embrace the gospel, nor respond in faith and repentance towards Christ, without God first freeing him from sin and giving him spiritual life. Incredible that you can read the scriptures that are so clear on this and come to that conclusion. But when you're reading the writings of, Calvinism, uh, of Calvinists over and over, that are, and they have to believe it, you have no choice by how you define total depravity, you have to have regeneration preceding faith. Because you made it impossible for anybody to seek God without it. So again, the common thinking is all those who God has elected at some point become regenerated, born again, so as to uh, hear and understand the gospel and put their faith in Christ, as White had just said. And they have different time frames they put on it. I've read, I've read many of their writings. Some believe as babies. Some believe almost moments prior to salvation, which I don't get how they can believe that, because clearly they were already seeking God. It makes no sense. R.C. Sproul on the subject. The Reformed view of predestination teaches that before a person can choose Christ, he must be born again, and one does not believe, then become reborn. Amazing. And, of course, we see from Scripture, we looked at this several weeks ago, that on the question, does regeneration precede faith? And it certainly does not. We saw it over and over, time and time again in Scripture. Um, and the Bible clearly teaches that a moment a person places their faith in Christ, they are saved and become a child of God. They are regenerated. First Peter chapter 1. Let's go to First Peter chapter 1. Being born again, not of, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word Lord endureth forever. And this is the word, get this, which by the gospel is preached unto you. They were born again as a result of the word that was preached unto them. The gospel, which led to their regeneration. This isn't complicated. <clears throat> and of course, the example that uh, I think is, there's multitudes of examples, but the greatest example obviously is Nicodemus. He is genuinely seeking Christ. He is. Which, according to their definition of total depravity, which is an incorrect definition, again, remember the key word I said, what they focus on is man's inability. That's where they go wrong with depravity. It doesn't give man an inability at all. That's where the error is. All right? Man still, even though he is depraved, has the ability to seek God. All right? Let's take Nicodemus. Nicodemus is genuinely and truly, he's heard him preach, he saw his miracles, and he knows no man can do these things except he come from God. And he goes to find him. So here is a man that Christ said still needs to be born again. And yet he's seeking God. That alone breaks down the irresistible grace along with total depravity. And again, if you break down any one of these, the whole thing falls flat. They're all built upon each other.
Calvinists maintain, get this, I'm going to quote from a man here, that if salvation is left to man's decision, then it leads to boasting. Let me quote from Carson. If Christ died for all people with exactly the same intent, which he did, then surely it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that the ultimate distinguishing mark between those who are saved and those who are not is their own decision. That's correct. So this is his conclusion. Their own decision, their own will. That is surely ground for boasting. That's absurd. No, it's not. Not at all. For a sinner to come humbly before God, realizing how wretched he is, going to be judged of Almighty God and needing of his grace and his forgiveness through what Christ provided on the cross, provides no grounds for boasting, but only thankfulness and gratitude, rejoicing because of God's grace. It doesn't provide for any grounds of boasting. But they make those statements and people just read it. Oh, yeah. No, there's no boasting in that. Of course, the underlying theory behind irresistible grace is is the idea that God's will is always done. Let me quote again from, from some Calvinists here. This is from Hauk. God's... God sovereignly works in all things in such a way that he makes all things do what he has willed in his eternal counsel. Same gentleman. Because God's will is always done, the will of every creature must conform to the sovereign will of God. Calvinists divide God's will primarily into two categories. The secret will and the revealed will of God. God's secret will to the Calvinists and their teaching is based on, on this single decree from before the foundation of the world. And they believe this secret will will always will will excuse me, will is always fulfilled. God's revealed will is what we do, not what God does. Now, there are secret things that belong unto God. I don't question that. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of the law, of, of the law forever. So I, I don't necessarily have a, a problem with that in, in, at a base, but it's just where it's taken to. The problem with Calvinism comes when man does not obey God's revealed will, which happens all the time. For instance, it is God's perfect will that man give thanks for everything. Is it not? Does that happen? It does not. But that's the will of God. Or how about, we know we're commanded also to, it's the will of God that we should avoid fornication. Does that happen? No. Again, this is where Calvinists have the problem of sin. Disobeying God falls into the category of God's secret will. Now, this teaching here, in all fairness, but I just think that, that within the, not that the others are dishonest, I don't mean to imply that, I don't know another way to word this better, that those who hold to what's called hyper or high Calvinism, to me they're just more honest with the, the reasoning of what they're believing. All right? This would be from a hyper or a high Calvinist. Their view is it is the logical conclusion on how they view the will of God based on the decree God has proclaimed. Therefore, unthankfulness, fornication are all part of God's will. That, of course, and I, and I dealt with that earlier in this too, how, how there's an element of Calvinism that believes that, God's, his, that there's nothing done apart from God's will. Nothing done from that. That's absurd. 
Here's a quote from another one from Beza. Nothing falls outside the divine willing, even when certain events are clearly, clearly contrary to God's will. And again, they rectify that, that contradiction of statement between secret will and revealed will. The truth is, God's will can refer to what God performs, to what He prefers, and to what He permits. Failure to make these distinctions can lead to a lot of problems. Calvinists believe God cannot will what will never take place. They believe if God wills it, it will happen. Let's see if that's true in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Just one verse here. Um, this is the Lord directing. Notice what he says here in verse 29. Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and, that their, and, and with their children forever. Here is clearly something that is God's will, what God desired For the nation of Israel, really for the people of this earth, but in in context here, we'll stay with that. But we certainly know that did not take place. Look over in Matthew. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 23. Verse number 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her children under her wings, and ye would not. Again, clearly resisting what is the revealed will of God. Clearly fighting against it. What God will, yet man was in fact resisting. And I'm going to get to their arguments. They have a base argument of why they believe it's impossible for man to resist God's will. And I'll cover that in just, just shortly. <clears throat> Again, uh, um, we can see in, in the verse that I read, 2 Peter chapter 3, it's, it's God's will that, not, that uh, uh, he's not willing that any should perish. But the truth is the majority are going to perish. We see that in 1 Timothy 2.4, that God wills that all men to be saved. But that's not what's going to happen. Let's look at some of their conclusions here. This is from Tom Ross. Let me quote from him. He said this, If every man possesses a free will that is powerful enough to resist God's will in salvation, what would prevent that same man from choosing to resist the will of God in damnation at the great right throne of judgment? That statement is absurd, but you're getting to the core of why they believe you cannot resist God's will. That it somehow no longer makes God God. I mean, think about what this man said here. 
He, say, he, he makes an absurd argument, but he doesn't see it. If every man possesses a free will that is powerful enough to resist God's will and salvation, what would prevent the same man from choosing to risk, resist the will of God in damnation at the great right throne of judgment? That is crazy. I, I, God's love and salvation are offered by grace for man to choose. God's judgment is imposed by justice. There's a huge difference. You cannot compare the two. There is no man, because it's in God's sovereignty and in his power that he chose to give man choice. But when they're at judgment day, in God's sovereignty and his power, he doesn't have choice to say no to salvation. It is not the fact that man has somehow the power in himself. To resist God. That is absurd. That's not the argument we make. It is the fact that in God's sovereignty and his power, he chose to give man salvation, or chose to give man a choice in salvation. That's what he did. At judgment day, that all-powerful God, they don't have that choice. It's done. We would not have that power if God did not determine to make it man's choice. And he did. If any man come unto me, he stressed over and over that the sovereign God gave the choice to man. That in no way means my power is greater than God's. It means in, 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 in his, uh, from eternal decree, from going back before the foundation of the world, he knew that would come to pass, that he would give mankind that choice. And we can see in Scripture the time. Look at Acts 7.51. Let's see if God can be resisted. See, what they do is, understand the psychology behind this. As we're going to read, they say, if you believe God can be resisted, it's as if you are denying his omnipotence. That he's all-powerful. No, we're not. Not at all. That's absurd. I have no doubt that if God so chose to, whatever, whatever he wanted done would be done because he's God. Whatever it is. But we see in Scripture clearly what that sovereign, all-powerful God chose. And in this area, he chose to give man choice. Acts seven fifty one. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised. This is Stephen preaching in heart and ears. You do always resist... The Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. They resisted. It's scripture, it's there. It doesn't mean God's not all powerful, He certainly is. This is how the sovereign God determined salvation would work. That within mankind, the one who was made in His image, the one who is totally depraved, I don't disagree with that. I disagree with their definition of inability. That within us, though, through the salvation that is provided by Christ, if we will humble ourselves and come and seek him and place our faith in Christ, he will save us. And each man has that choice, what they do with that. <clears throat> and there's, i got several verses down here. I'm not going to go to all of them. Matthew 23, 37. I've already looked at 2 Timothy 3, Revelation 3, 20, Ephesians 4, 30, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Just different examples of the resisting taking place, if you will. 
Again, when we claim God can be resisted, they make outrageous claims that I've already stated. Let me get some quotes from those. If, if they say you're going to deny irresistible grace, that God's will, uh, uh, um, that God can be resisted. Quote number one, if God's grace can be resisted, then God can be overcome. Outrageous. That's not at all what we believe. Nor is it true scripturally in any way. Number two, second quote, God is not omnipotent if he can be resisted and rejected. Not true at all. It's a faulty conclusion based on that slanted view you have when you're looking at this. What that sovereign God chose in his all-powerful who he is, that he chose to give man that choice. That that individual who was made in God's image, the sovereign God said, you have the choice what you do. I give that to you. It's in God's power that that choice was given. That in no way means that that, it, it, that implies a power that is beyond God or changes the all-powerful God. It does not. <clears throat> Third quote. If every man possess a free will that is powerful enough to resist the will of God in salvation, what would prevent the same man from choosing to resist the will of God in damnation? This is a similar quote to, to what I quoted earlier, I think, from Hauk. Absurd. To say, again, salvation is offered in grace. When you're standing for God in judgment, that's all about justice that day, that that's going to be imposed. Some of their key proof text. Ezekiel chapter 37, let's turn there. This is the vision of dry bones, a popular chapter when it comes to the book of Ezekiel. Um, in verse 2, you see he passes by, he sees the, the, uh, the valley that is there, and lo, they were very dry. He said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, said, O Lord, thou knowest. He said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And, of course, then it goes on and, and it takes place and, and, and the, the, the proclamation of the prophet through God's power takes place and, and it's, it's made life. And so this is actually one of the proof texts that they use for irresistible grace. They claim the dry bones in no way could stop God from giving them life, uh, thus a picture of irresistible grace. That is a misapplication of Scripture. This is not dealing with personal salvation at all, but the nation of Israel. It's finding something in Scripture to try and make it match your point. This is dealing with the restoration of the nation of Israel, not salvation of individual souls at all. And th that's common with... Now, now, there's a lot of Calvinists today who are not amillennialists that don't follow covenant theology, that they would actually have the same view of eschatology that we hold to, pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, but nonetheless, at, at, at multitudes of Calvinists, and especially when it began, they were all amillennialists. And part of this comes from that because they believe all the promises of Israel went to, the, went to the church, which isn't true. The promises of Israel are Israel. The promises that local churches have belong to local churches. <clears throat> John chapter 5, verse 21. Let's turn there. 
John 5.21 For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. So this is a common verse used in the idea of irresistible grace. And so let's, let's cover this one first. This verse in context is dealing with physical resurrection. Physical resurrection. Jesus would raise three people from the dead, as we know, um, during his ministry on the earth. Uh, verse 20, given the context about greater works that would be done, uh, when you look at verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son, showeth him all things that he himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For as the Father raises up the, son, uh, raises up the dead and quickeneth him, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Uh, that's referring to what would come with the three people he had raised from the dead. But let's just say, for sake of argument, that it is dealing with spiritual, uh, uh, a spiritual resurrection, if you will. It in no way demonstrates irresistible grace. We know what Christ's will is concerning from passing death unto life spiritually. Uh, matter of fact, that he goes on to even talk about that more in verse 24 and 25 of this same chapter. Christ's will is that those by faith who come to him will be given life. Look, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He lays it out right there. That those who come to him by faith, he will save. It in no way is teaching anything regarding an irresistible grace. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth that we should be, a, be a, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First of all, I, I don't question it. It's, it's God's will that a kingdom. He's not willing that any should perish. It, it is of God's will. I don't question that. The verse says nothing that it could not be resisted. It doesn't say that. If you read further, really going into, even into verse 21, it makes it impossible for irresistible grace to be true because we are exhorted to receive with meekness. Why would I need to choose? Why would I? Uh, why would I need to choose to receive first? Uh, uh, and second, why would I need to do it with meekness if it cannot be resisted? Why would those attributes be given? There's nothing I can do about this. It doesn't make sense. John chapter six. John chapter six. John chapter 6, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That verse is exactly true, but it doesn't teach irresistible grace. If the Father doesn't work on my heart and draw me, if I don't have the work of God's Spirit on my heart, I will not be saved. If I don't have that conviction and that drawing that's there, but it doesn't teach uh, that, that this is impossible to be resisted. We have examples of those who resist just that. We, we have examples of those who are under conviction and they refuse it. It is of God that I am saved. There's no question about it. Let me look lastly at Acts chapter 16. 
Acts chapter 16. We looked at this just a, a month or two ago here in the series on Acts. In verse 14, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Another verse commonly were used for irresistible grace. Let's, let's make, we, got, we have to understand this. Salvation is of God. That's not the argument. It is. Unless the Lord works, unless the Lord draws, I have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I will never be saved. That will not happen. The point is this. That what we see in Scripture, that when that conviction hit, man has a choice. Whether they're going to respond to that conviction or reject it. That's, that's where the argument lies. Salvation is of God. Without Him, I would not be saved. But the Scriptures clearly teach that it's up to that man at that moment. What is he going to do with it? And that doesn't challenge the all-powerful God. It's how the all-powerful God set it in motion. But again, you have to have this in order for the, the, the Calvinism to be complete. It was just a series of, of, of a very, very smart man in Calvin using deductive reasoning when he was reading Augustine. If this is true, then this is true, then this is true. And again, like I said to start with, the problem started off with wasn't true. And it went from there. So now, let me cover this real quickly before we close. Where do babies go when they die? Um, in that same chapter, the Westminster Confessional has brought up this issue. That's why I'll reference it here. Um, I was reading from their definition of irresistible grace in that chapter earlier. Um, it is mentioned in there that how it's only elect babies, if they die, would go to heaven. And so I want to deal with this, uh, this issue. That is, of course, outrageous. And again, many, many Calvinists do deny this. Um, it would be a mistake if you went up to a Calvinist and just assumed they believe it. And, and, and don't, there are many who do believe it. Don't, there are still many. I, I had a, when, I, when I taught this, this the first time around eight years ago, I had a discussion with a man who believed just that. So I'm going to give the response from a Calvinist himself in responding to this argument, Charles Spurgeon, who did not believe that. Charles Spurgeon preached against it, and I have his little outline right here of what he used to say there's no way that's true. Um, he said, number one, the goodness and nature of God. It goes against who God is. He's exactly right. It goes against who God is. Um, um, and uh, second point, I don't have time to develop is you can you can look up charles spurgeon's sermon and read on it secondly he said it's the way of grace and it is thirdly he brings up what we often use when dealing with people with this the case of david's baby who died we know he, he, david had pointed out how he would be with that child that when that baby died that baby was in heaven um he also uses the verse out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. He hath perfected praise he ties that into all babies when they, if they die would go to heaven um, and one that I like as well, let me turn there, Deuteronomy, I want you to see this one though, Deuteronomy chapter 1, I like his last point that he brings out for this, a lot, Deuteronomy chapter 1, it's sort of where we develop this idea of age of accountability is from here.
Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39 is, is instruction as to who's going to go into the promised land. Verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. It's a great verse 4. I know it's not dealing with salvation in heaven and hell, but the same principle is in place right here. God in his grace and in his goodness, what did he determine? They had no knowledge. I'm not going to hold them accountable for that. Then it makes perfect sense to say the same thing is true with salvation. They have no knowledge of good and evil. I will not hold them accountable for that. That's where we come up with the term age of accountability. That when a child is able to recognize and clearly understand good and evil, it's time for salvation to take place. Does that make sense? All right, amen. Let's go ahead with our heads bowed and eyes closed. This certainly was more of a teaching tonight, just on irresistible grace. But you might have something you need to pray about. And let me ask this question. Perhaps you're here right now. You're not certain that if you're to die that you'd go to heaven. I want you to think about that because you're going to die one day. That's going to happen. And you're going to face an almighty God in judgment. Is your soul going to heaven or are you going to hell? Hell is a very real place. The entire reason that God became a man was to save you from that judgment, is to save you from hell. And the sad truth is, even as the Lord said, few there be that find it. Even though he provided salvation for all men, few there be that find it. Is there anyone here say, Pastor, please pray for me. I don't know for certain that I am saved. Please pray for me. Would you just raise your hand? Right now, let me see it. Anybody here like that at all? I see a couple of small children. If you, if you raised your hand, I missed it. I would need you to do it again. All right, Christian. If you have something you need to pray about this evening, we'll give you time to do that now. Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Turn to page 483. And if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.